fairness does not mean everybody gets the same. Fairness means everyone gets what they need. Fairness is when everyone gets to embrace the void. you to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. episode 190 of embrace the void where all issues of equality are handled equitably i am your host aaron and this week we are discussing different approaches to fairness so let's reflect on some equilibriums life ends in death which we as a species are cursed with knowing resulting in something my guest this week is nestor de bon a Chicago MA graduate and a writer who has been published at Marion West and Quillet. Would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's nice to put a face to uh, the bird with lightsaber um, oh. avatar <laughs> that I've gotten so used to on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for inviting me. I like. I actually like the podcast a lot, so yeah. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. I, I've enjoyed some of your writings that you've sent and has been on some similar topics to kinds of things I often talk about on the show. So I thought it'd be fun to have you on and work through uh, some of those. We, I, there were two articles in particular um, that we had talked about discussing one on equity versus equality and another one on sort of that and other things as they relate to the kind of culture war, wokeness stuff that we're often talking about on here. Um, so I thought we'd start with, well, before we even get to the articles, though, do you want to give yeah. folks a little bit about yourself, uh, sort of your ideological background that you are bringing to these kinds of conversations? Yeah, sure. So like politically, I guess I mm -hmm. consider myself like a, a classical Republican, but the kind of the kind of classical Republican that basically thinks that republicanism requires some sort of democratic socialism so what do you mean by a classical republican well yeah so basically the tradition that goes all the way from um, some might say aristotle others might say like rome through you know machiavelli and more recent writers are probably uh quentin skinner some would say elizabeth anderson falls into that category uh, and well, the, the basic idea is just that understanding liberty, not so much as non-interference, the way that liberals tend to do, but as non-domination, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's not just that there's no, you know, external con constraints on you to stop you from, you know, doing what you want to do, but that you're also not subject to the will of others like you can be subject to the will of others but those other people could still mm -hmm. you know let you do what you want to do right could you give like a concrete example where you feel like those things come apart and you think republicanism has the the better side of the argument a very recent uh topic that i think republicans have said a lot about that i think is interesting it's actually the workplace in that you know in the workplace as a worker, you don't really have, yeah, I mean, like, basically, the, the will of your boss is still, like, a form of domination mm -hmm. on you and on workers. So a lot of Republicans, I think the most uh, well-known, the, mo the well most well-known Republican that has 
written about this is Alex Gurevich. Gurevich, Gurevich. I don't, I'm mm -hmm. not sure how to pronounce his last name. That's okay. It's not a requirement on this show. <laughs> yeah. And so he's written about a lot about how uh, in the early 19th, more like late 19th century, uh, a lot of workers in the United States kind of saw themselves as, you know, trying to fulfill the Republican ideals of the American Revolution through the organizing of factories and fields and all of that into worker cooperatively owned um, workplaces, I guess. Mm -hmm. And by the workers being the owners, then they stop being subject to the will of the boss, for example, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So it becomes sort of like a cooperative community of workers. And so in that sense, it's they saw that as like the next step after, you know, being subject to the will of the king and then being subject to, well, the slaves being subject to the will of the master or whatever. And so like the, the next logical step was to kind of, emancipate the workers interesting this is feels very different from the way that i've been taught to understand republicanism in america right which has a much has very much the opposite meaning it feels like in a lot of ways yeah yeah that that is actually very interesting i mean like i, I know this isn't the the topic but uh yeah actually mm -hmm. one of the first pieces i ever published in english because i i've written in spanish uh, in other media, but like one of the first uh, pieces that I actually published was about that, about how like, you know, because I think Americans are very used to like that argument of like, oh, we're a republic, not a democracy. So like the electoral college is all right, mm -hmm. which is, a, you know, I think it's a very disingenuous argument, but I do think a lot of people do believe it like as if that's, as if, yeah, like, like that's republicanism. It's it's not democracy. Yeah, well, and that one's even a different distinction than the one I had in mind. I was thinking about Republicans as in the political party, which is right, right. largely politically conservative and, and pro, you know, business exploitation and anti all of the things that you've been describing, which is why I wanted you to clarify yeah. what you're meaning, because I think a lot of my listeners hear you say you're a Republican and what they think you mean is, you know, you're of the party of Mitch McConnell and something like that rather. Right, than, right, right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you're right. There isn't even the further distinction like that that I think is often like not a useful distinction when people bring it up in conversations that democracy versus republic. Like not to say that it's not ever useful, but I think more often than not, when it gets thrown into a debate, it confuses the debate rather than clarifies anything. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So you're a Republican in the democratic socialist sense, which is a fascinating yeah. new meaning of the word that I'm now a huge fan of. And I'm just going to correct in my head whenever other people use it in different ways and pretend they mean something better. Um, <laughs> so how does that then, so that leads, I think, into our first topic, which is the article that you wrote about equality versus equity. Yeah. Oh, and just one mm -hmm. thing, if I may, yeah. I would say like not all of, not all modern Republicans are actually, uh, you know, democratic socialists. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, for example, I, I I wouldn't think that Quentin Skinner takes republicanism that far, or even uh, I'm uh, Philip Pettit, uh, mm -hmm. another like very uh, well known Republican. He's sort of like a you know center left Republican, I would say, but I mm -hmm. don't think he takes it that far, you know, as to requires some kind of democratic socialism but yeah you just, you just think that he should right that he's yeah yeah falling short and not doing so so okay equity versus equality now these are terms that are i think in many ways sort of essentially contestable right people have different definitions different meanings and there may not be one right definition or or meaning here so what do you mm -hmm. feel like are the definitions that you were working with in this particular article and why did you want to focus on those particular definitions Right. So the, um, well, the, the, the important one, I think, is the definition of equity, right? Mm -hmm. um, which the one I was working with, which I don't necessarily agree with, but, you know, that's the one I was working with because 
I guess that's how it's been thrown around in, you know, recent mm-hmm. times, I guess. Uh, but it, it's basically equity means equality of outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, well, that's the thing. Equality just means, well, the, like the people who use equity in a like, negative sense, they usually contrast it with equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But then that, that doesn't tell us anything about like the definition of like equality without adjectives, right? It's right. Just equality I mean, of what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is basically one of the most basic questions in moral philosophy that they don't even ask, I think. Mm-hmm. They just think it's like the obvious distinction between, well, there's equality of outcome and then there's equality of opportunity. And like, yeah, that's obviously the end of it or Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah this is so this is interesting to me i i do agree i think at this point that i see people unfortunately sometimes using equity to mean something like a quality of outcome or they will equate those things without clarification and it seems to me that is bad for several reasons one that it plays into these kind of um false dichotomy narratives that I think critics are trying to present here. But you also, I think, raise some other concerns about the very concept of um, equality of outcomes. Maybe we can discuss those concerns a bit and then think about are there better, more functional definitions of equity that we could be sort of championing instead um, here. So what is what is your concern in the article with the concept of equality of outcome itself? Right. So... I think basically the idea of equality of outcome doesn't make sense in that. um, So obviously, as we were just saying, you know, like uh, the more the one of the most basic questions is equality of what? Right. Mm -hmm. And for example, um, if you look at um, block egalitarianism, right, like this school of thought that believes that the point of equality sort of like to redress all the inequalities that are that arise in society due to sort of luck right luck of birth luck of um you mm-hmm. know um economic situation whatever and so the first problem is i think when these people say like you know Jordan Peterson or um, James Lindsay or whatever, when when they talk about equality of outcome, they generally talk about two different things. And there's an article by Jordan Peterson on his, on his website where he sort of makes a distinction. Uh, mm-hmm. And one sense of equality of outcome basically means um, every demographic that exists in society Mm-hmm. needs to have like the same average outcomes right so like if there are you know whites blacks and hispanics there should be and like let's say whites are you know 50 percent of the population and then blacks and hispanics are 25 and 25 then equality of outcome and like equity you know requires that we should see um 50% white people in congress and 25 and 25 Blacks and Latinos, and then, but also, you know, engineers, they should be 50% white and 25 and 25, etc. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that's one sense in which they use um, equity or equality of outcome. And then mm-hmm. the other one is basically everyone has the same of everything, like, you know, in every possible like measure you could think of right you mean in terms of like resources and things well and that that's where it starts to get complicated right um mm-hmm. well because and then i think in that article jordan peterson does this thing where he kind of says that well in the end both meanings are kind of the same because you know then he says well then they start bringing up intersectionality and then you can divide and divide like demographic groups like further and further and until 
like almost every individual is like their own demographic group mm -hmm. and so equality of outcome basically requires that everyone has like the same of everything in every possible sense mm -hmm. and then you start getting gulags and whatever because like the only for the, the only way that people can have the same of everything is if they're all like equally poor right which is it, a it, kind it, of leveling a, down objection yeah right right um and so the way in which i think that concept of equity or equality of outcome doesn't make sense is that for example if you look at lock egalitarianism um one of the sort of like the two main um i guess branches you could call them is those who think that um an egalitarian society should um like guarantee equal resources and then those who think mm -hmm. it should guarantee like equal welfare right mm -hmm. um and so the debate comes down to well obviously if you have equal resources in since people you know derive different levels of enjoyment from different things if you have equal resources then you're going to have different levels of welfare right mm -hmm. uh, and given that like conversely if you want to have equal levels of welfare then you need different resources for um for different people right you need like the allocation of resources that ensures everyone has an equal welfare which will be like an unequal um distribution of resources right yeah i, I guess i'm curious here it seems like this is a kind of means and this is a distinction right like the right. equal resources is a means to getting the equal welfare in my mind so like if you can get more equal welfare through an unequal distribution of resources is there what is the reason not to do that why is that not just the way that we should under better like the better way to understand this kind of equality of outcome idea well, I think what they would say is, so like, to me, I don't have, you know, a strong objection to one or the other. I think what mm -hmm. they would say is, um, well, then you have to take things from, you know, rich people or whatever, like, sure. in an unjust way, and then just like, give it to others, right? Oh, yeah, I just um, don't think it's unjust, I guess, is the difference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so like, I guess my my central point regarding that is well is out does outcome imply resources or does outcome imply welfare right like what's like to me like the idea of an like a final outcome implies everything and they they do sort of like when they criticize um you know the left as pushing equality of outcome they the sense i get is always due to the, like the leveling down argument and all that is that what they mean is some final measure of everything and my point is like you can't have that like there's there's no mm -hmm. way in which you could measure an overall everything right um right which of which the um resources versus welfare um distinction is just like one example but you could extend that you know ad infinitum i guess yeah though i do think there are like reasonable responses that even like i'm not super wedded to the equality of outcome form formulation of these kinds of ideas but if i wanted to be in defense of it for a moment like i think they could pretty easily say you know, address this distinction by saying, well, we're just going to lean on the welfare side. And they, you know, could say that they have correctives for the kind of leveling down objection stuff. And I think where this is actually going to come down, and I, I think you see this a lot in both Peterson and folks like Lindsay, is the reason they're pushing back on this is not because they have a good ethical argument against equality of welfare as an outcome situation it's that they think that it's impossible in a sense in a practical kind of way to get there without being exceedingly totalitarian in a sense right right 
And then, like, something interesting that happens, actually, is that, for example, in his... And I don't remember if, you know, the entry on new discourses is called either equity or equality of outcome. Um, but one of the examples he uses is actually very similar to something that Amartya Sen talks about, which is, um, mm-hmm. you know, disabled people. Right. Um, and so, like... Lindsay says something like, well, if you think about a disabled person having access to a wheelchair in order to, um, you know, be able to move around, um, then no one would object to that thing, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is sort of like the left takes it too far and then they want to, you know, if if you're going to give um, wheelchairs to disabled persons, then you also have to pay reparations for slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And then my argument would be, well, yeah, like there's there's no... Mm-hmm. I, I don't see any moral difference between, um, you know, the disadvantage that African-Americans are placed in because of, you know, the history of slavery and then, mm-hmm. you know, Jim Crow, etc., and the disadvantage that a, like a disabled person is placing for not being able to i mean obviously there there are different situations but they're both unfair disadvantages that mm-hmm. uh, are not of your own making right and so like yeah. why why is one inobjectionable from their point of view and the other one isn't Yeah, I think I agree with your sort of larger point there. I think it is particularly naive of Lindsay to suggest that people did not object to, like, increased prevalence of wheelchairs. There are still a lot of places that are wheelchair inaccessible and that have resisted making themselves, their spaces more uh, um, accessible for a variety of reasons. They're like all sorts of people make arguments against this. Um, But I also think... I think there is at least one sort of interesting distinction, though I don't think it undercuts your point here, um, that sort of gets at, I think, the sim- the oversimplicity of what they have in mind when they're thinking about a quality of outcome. I think they're mostly, as you describe in the article, thinking about allocating of shares, right? You, you call them or resources or something like that. So it's like yeah. to make everything equal, we have to give it, we have to redistribute the monies or something like that. But if you look at like social analysis of disability, for example, right, you could argue that there's, there's plenty of work to be done on just restructuring society in various ways. It doesn't involve giving money directly to disabled people or something like that, but like vastly decreases the amount of suffering that they experience because of the interaction between their disability and the way that like science or the way that the way that society has been structured because of a lack of concern for members of those communities. So I feel like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff that could go into even just a basic idea of a quality of outcome that doesn't look like these kind of redistributionist models, unless you want to like say, you know, spending the resources on, you know, refitting buildings is a redistribution in this kind of way or something like that. Um, in which case, you know, I guess all social goods are based on redistribution and it's not really useful to right. object to them solely on that principle. Right, right. Well, and then the other thing that I think is important is sort of like the essentialist argument that, Mm -hmm. well, you know. Oh, yeah. And you had a good part about this in the article. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like basically, yeah. Since, you know, the classical, the classic one that Peterson uses is like, well, men and women have different preferences. So obviously, like, you're not going to see as much like, you know, women engineers Mm-hmm. And you're not going to see as much, um, you know, men being nurses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, I am, I mean, I, I do largely think that evolutionary psychology is like BS. Um, okay. <laughs> but, you know, I'm also not like biology and, you know, psychology and all that, like that. that's not my field. So I'm not really qualified to you know make Mm -hmm. a final assessment on well actually you know 
every preference that men and women have like differently it's it's completely cultural right that like mm-hmm. i'm i guess i'm just you know skeptical about that i but my the the thing i think is important is to say well even if you accept that there are some you know differences between people um mm-hmm. that is not like that doesn't mean that there aren't like a lot like a lot of um current outcomes that are dictated by you know social mores basically mm-hmm. um so i think that's that's basically a non argument because it's like okay yeah sure i i'll accept that there are some differences that are essential like well mm-hmm. not not let's accept but let's you know assume that there are uh, for the sake of argument even then yeah 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 even then um that doesn't mean that there are a lot of differences maybe more that are based on you know history and um the structure mm-hmm. of society etc so in the end yeah i mean you could you could say even if you accept that then you can still say that there are unfair outcomes that are due to history structural causes etc right yeah, and I mean, I think you point out in the article that it's kind of a non sequitur in a sense. If you're definite, like, if, if we assume Lindsay's argument, you know, assume his definition of um, equality of opportunity, you know, equity being equality of outcome or something like that, and that the goal of social justice is to correct for social injustices that are preventing that or something that's not incompatible as you point out with maybe there are biological differences or something and i think in order to close that non sequitur gap he has to make a claim which is unsupported i think many of them make this claim unsupported that um social justice folks completely deny that any amount of inequality could be the result of factors other than systemic injustice or something like that which i just don't believe is like true for the vast majority of individuals that like i think folks can acknowledge that there are differences between individuals that will produce different outcomes while still sort of um highlighting how much like the unfairness of those outcomes tends to be socially tied right like for example i think a very you know easy one to uh to see is Mm -hmm. i I think everyone accepts that on average men are physically stronger than women right um and so that's yeah Mm -hmm. that's why you don't have you know i'm not a a scientist so at this point i'm not i'm not confident even on that but sure i think right the, the current evidence suggests and we don't know if it's cultural or biological but the current evidence does suggest biological differences in terms of the placement of muscle mass right 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 exactly um and so i i don't think like for example i don't i don't know that there's any um like social justice theories or whatever that is advocating to for you know mixed wrestling tournaments right or something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. um and yeah so yeah like like you said at least certainly not at certain levels i imagine there are advocates in favor of at less competitive levels encouraging sort of less of these gender binaries but i would i would imagine like right at like the olympic level no one i think is arguing for that that i know of right yeah Yeah, so i think that that's a good um example Uh, so all of this to me like drives home why i think that advocates who want to use the term equity should be a lot sort of more careful i think in how they define it and like we haven't really we haven't at all hardly used the word fairness here which i think is the problem right to me right equality is not in contrast with equity equity refers to a kind of 
fairness-based approach to allocation, which may be compatible with equality or may depart from equality in all sorts of like complicated kinds of ways. I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you sort of agree that so, so like, for example, let me say one, one way that I think these things can obviously come apart is that I think you can have equity of process that doesn't have anything to do with equality of outcome, right? You can have a more or less equitable and you could you could say, well, look, a more equitable process may be more likely to produce more equitable outcomes. But like you can, I think, separate out the fairness of a process itself and work on improving that. And it would be good to improve that, even if the outcomes for some reason don't change at all. Would you yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And actually, I think, I don't remember if it was um, on direct message or just like on a Twitter thread, but yeah, I think you basically said something like, I think the correct definition of equity is, is fairness of outcome rather than equality of outcome, which I, I mm-hmm. think is, you know, uh, you know, the most reasonable definition that you can have. I do want to say though, like when I was, you know, doing some research for the article, I did find, especially in, you know, one of the like big bad villains of mm-hmm. sort of like the intellectual dark web, which is um, campus administrators and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, I think at least one, um, you know, sort of like, equity, diversity, and inclusion website, I think it was from London School of Economics, mm-hmm. um, which actually drew the same distinction between equity and equality that, you know, folks like Peterson do. And it explicitly said, um, equity is about equality of outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's um, sort of like unfortunate that they do that. Because if you actually read the article, what they describe is much more mm-hmm. fairness of outcome rather than equality of outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they use the word equality, well, the phrase equality of outcome, which I think is unfortunate. But yeah, right. like the point is, they're not advocating that everyone should get an A in the course, right? They're just advocating that, um, like, all students have you know, the same kind of capabilities to succeed in a particular course, right? Mm -hmm. Another reason I think that equity is often unfortunately associated with a quality of outcome is that when it comes to trying to prove inequity, the easiest thing generally to point to is inequality of outcome, right? And it's Right. And, that, and that's unfortunate because I think there are other ways that you can prove inequity, but they are sort of harder, I think, to show in some ways. And so it becomes easy for a lot of people to associate the two, which then makes for an easy target, I think, for critics who want to come in and say, oh, you're simply, you know, you're ignoring the possibility that these differences in outcome could be the result of anything else, which I don't think is actually what the literature does. But yeah, I do think that it's it's just an unfortunate problem that it becomes more difficult to really try to, and that's what this is the job I think of, of, you know, what social justice folks are doing. And I do think there's lots of work in doing this, you know, but you really got to narrow in and find the work that is saying these outcomes are different, even when we control for all of these other kinds of factors that might be um, right, right. You know, causing a difference in outcome here. Right. Like, um, I think a very good one is um, uh, black and white people use drugs at the same rate Mm -hmm. and, you know, black people tend to get arrested and, you know, incarcerated for drug offenses much Mm -hmm. more often than, but the problem is that, yeah, you, you can't always find such a clear cut example of how, you know, like the I guess the baseline is exactly the same. And then uh, the outcomes are like so wildly different, right? Mm -hmm. 
I think there's also a kind of weird absolutism that comes into this conversation where it's like either we can't do any of this stuff or like we have to go all the way to the extreme where I think the reality is a lot of advocates would be really happy to just see like any amount of improvement on right. a variety of fronts and like they they are therefore I think less concerned with like is it conceptually impossible to really truly get there? Because like practically speaking, we've got so many things that we could move the ball down the field on before we get anywhere close to those kind of, you know, asymptotic paradoxical kinds of situations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a very fair point. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's, we can't do with quality of outcomes. So we just need to have like completely unregulated free markets and you know whatever right uh <laughs> well so yeah. yeah i think this is a good part for us to pivot to the second article that you also sent me which was about sort of your criticisms of like the anti-wokes criticisms broadly speaking and because i think it this 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 issue that we're having here with equality versus equity is indicative of a larger problem that I see in these sort of culture war philosophizing, essentially, right? People who are doing right. philosophy in the culture war sphere is that they are often very, very simplifying down some incredibly complex philosophical issues for which there is often many different positions and not a lot of unified agreement. And then saying, you know, the woke hold this one position and the anti-woke hold a diametrically opposed position. And that's all there is. And you either have to adopt one or the other. Um, so do you want to maybe like lay out a little bit just briefly, like what were your top line kind of criticisms in this article sort of in that in that vein? Yeah. So if it's the one that I'm thinking of, because I think I've written like a couple, but I mean, mm -hmm. in the end, they're all, you know, in the same vein. Mm -hmm. So um yeah i think so there are two problems and one i don't really go into which is that these anti-woke folks sort of like completely misrepresent um the sort of quote-unquote woke positions right and mm -hmm. you know i i don't do that too much because for example um sam hordley brill who you've had on mm -hmm. here uh, he, he does a great job of just outlining how, for example, Lindsay and Pluckrose just completely butcher, you know, Miranda Fricker and Christy mm -hmm. Dodson and all of these authors, right? Mm -hmm. um, but sort of like, on the other hand, I think they also completely misrepresent what they think is their own side of the argument, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, like, I, I think one good example of this, which is, I think the biggest example of complete oversimplification was the two plus two equals five thing, right? Right. Um, but just to not go exactly into that side, like like to not go into that level and sort of like relitigate whether two plus two equals five, um, <laughs> it's like in a lot of like. Lindsay's writing and Pluck Rose to an extent. Like I, I read stuff by Pluck Rose less than I read stuff by um, Lindsay. But sort of like the theme is that on the anti-woke side, there's like you know the realism and science and all mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. where you know truth is um, absolute and certain and you know whatever and then the anti-woke is the complete anarchy and um everything is socially constructed whatever whatever um but and then you can also even throw in there sometimes i think the analytic versus continental distinction where like mm -hmm. the woke are like the you know on rigorous continentals and then like mm -hmm. the anti-woke are like the very rigorous and methodical analytics um but yeah for example one of the things that Lindsay actually thinks he's advocating for is um positivism right 
Yes, this was a and, very interesting part of the article, right? Yeah, and he, he has like a like this uh, on his entries in the um, wokish dictionary or whatever. He has an mm-hmm. entry on positivism, right? And well, for starters, he like completely conflates like just regular positivism with logical positivism, which are not the same thing. I mean, like there's some overlap, I guess, but you know, mm-hmm. they're not the same thing. Um, and in many ways, I think they and, conflict with each other in some in some right, ways, yeah, right, yeah. And then, for example, because he says something like. Well, the woke will tell you that positivism is actually bad because it's, you know, kind of like uh, a white way of knowing. Or I don't remember exactly, but, you know, something along those lines of like mm-hmm. positivism is problematic because it sort of like ignores other ways of knowing or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he completely ignores the fact that actually most of the logical positivists of the you know early 20th century like you know Carnap and Neurath and uh, you know Reichenbach whatever they were in many ways they were like anti-realists mm-hmm. um, and for example I don't remember I think it was Hempel Neurath I, I but you know because like Lindsay one of the things he always likes to advocate is like the correspondence theory of truth. Right. Um, and then positivism, like logical positivism actually is like very non-compatible with like the correspondence theory of truth. And so they, they, they have more like the coherence theory of truth, which basically says that, um, yeah, things are true if they correspond to well i shouldn't use the word correspond here but if they sort of agree with like your broader theoretical framework that you're Mm -hmm. using right um but so rather than directly correspond to the reality in some way that is not clear right right yeah and then for example even um which i think is probably like my favorite uh, paper by Rule of Carnap, which is um, Empiricism, Semantics, and Ontology. Mm-hmm. Um, his argument is basically, well, whether there is an external world is sort of like a, it's an undecidable metaphysical question in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, a, it's very useful and pragmatic to, you know, believe in the external world world but uh in the end it's basically like you know it's it's a linguistic framework that we all agree upon and so you know Mm -hmm. it's not that like we can't ultimately prove um like things like are there numbers like he has this distinction between internal and external questions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like internal questions are questions that are internal to the linguistic framework that you're adopting. And so um, let's say if you're working in the framework of mathematics, then you could ask the question, uh, are there numbers? And mm-hmm. then in that sense, the internal question is trivial because well, of course, there are numbers. You're working within the framework of mathematics. But then the more metaphysical external question uh, outside of the framework of the language of mathematics, are there numbers, is basically undecidable because like, you can't prove ultimately whether there are numbers or mm-hmm. not. And so the same goes for you know basically external physical reality in some sense. Mm. It's like you're working within the linguistic framework of, you know, reality. And so is there an external reality? Well, sure. As an, as an internal question, that's completely trivial. And yes, of course there is, but as a metaphysical 
uh, question, then, well, it's undecidable, basically. And mm -hmm. I, I think that, for example, is something that the anti-woke would find pretty appalling, right? Because it's like... Not necessarily. I think, you know, there's that kind of basic idea of there's no outside of language that is is sort of the Derrida idea. Um, and they would, they would oh, sort no, of... Oh, no, no. I mean, like, I mean, like the anti-woke would find... Oh, the find... anti-woke find it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the anti-woke would find that horrifying. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the same vein, like, they think logical positivism is, like, their side of the argument, right? Right. Well, I think this is... Or like... Yeah. I mean, I think this is just a great example of, and it's, it's, you know, why it's so depressing that James's woke encyclopedia is like getting traction and getting referenced more by people is that the, there are these really important mistakes. And maybe someone on the outside would say, well, okay, he conflated positivism and logical positivism. Those names sound really sim similar. Why is that a mm -hmm. big deal? But I think as you've pointed out, it's a very big deal because they're different theories they come from very different places yeah. and when you're trying to spin these giant conspiracy theories about the history of certain ideas right like getting those ideas wrong and conflating them in a bunch of ways makes just the conspiracy theories that much worse it seems like right right and like one other thing though because for example like even if you ignore the uh, this is just to like make a point about what I was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. Even if you you know want to sort of like sideline the um, the point about like the external world, right? Because I think that gets a little more dicey, probably, because like a lot of people do just don't think it's good to ask whether there's an external world or not, because like, well, mm -hmm. it's obvious or whatever, right? But for example. Um, when it comes to things like mathematics, like a lot of the anti-woke people do seem to be like very hard Platonists regarding like mathematics, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I think there was even a thread on Twitter sometime by Heather Hying who was saying, well, like if you don't accept that, you know, mathematics are like real and absolute then like like what are you doing right which is such an amazingly non-naturalist position for them to be taking like, right right it's it's basically like platonism or you know i know yeah it's, it's fascinating in that way so let me ask you about something there was at least one thing in the article where i wanted to maybe give you a little pushback um, okay sure. about you know you, i thought you did a very good job in the article of trying to be as generous to them as possible in terms of the parts where you agreed and i think there were some parts where you sort of accurately identify genuine concerns i think there were other parts where i think you know you you identify their their argument correctly but i don't think it's a very good argument and i'm not quite sure i couldn't quite tell how sympathetic you were to it so there's the issue okay. that I've, I've talked about some before on the show about this idea that science is inexorably linked with colonialism right specifically white western um colonialism and i think you know, I've been thinking about this idea of, an, mm -hmm. of inexorable, and it seems to me that there could be at least two different versions of inexorably linked here. One would right. be a kind of conceptual linkage where a priori these things are inseparable or something. But another would be a sort of social historic concept, social historic kind of linkage where what we're saying is, you know, when science came into its own in the modern world, it did it in a time and place that made that inseparable from the the racial sort of philosophies of that period and that those things mm -hmm. became so embedded in parts of science that even if you can make science much better you're never going to fully weed them out of that system do you feel like you would you would push you would disagree with that sort of latter um description of inexorable um uh, connection there? No, I don't think I would like. I mean, my my main um, point was more on the conceptual side, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, yeah, like conceptually, you don't have to link the two. But in terms of you know history and like in a more sociological sense, 
I think that is, uh, you know, a fair criticism. I guess I would probably, you know, um, push back on some areas of science, like uh, obviously not biology, right? <laughs> obviously I not. <laughs> yeah, but um, like physics, for example, right? Like, I, I don't think you could say that like Maxwell's equations are linked to colonialism, even if like that's the same time frame. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the history about Maxwell's equations, so I can't speak to it. The, the example that sort of comes to mind for me based on the reading that I've been doing recently mm -hmm. is um, binomial nomenclature, right? The way that we name species using two Latin words, essentially, right? right? Um, you know, it seems to me unlikely that binomial nomenclature is going anywhere, that we're suddenly going to stop using those Latin words to do that kind of taxonomy work, right? But yeah. the history of that usage is inexorably in my mind linked to sort of racial domination in the sense that the goal was essentially to take a bunch of different languages, words for these things and like replace those with a unified um, account of all of these things in a language that also happens to be the language that, you know, wealthy white people tend to speak more than anyone else and thereby gives them a substantial advantage if they want to be doing scientific activity, for example. Well, actually, yeah, I, I had no idea about that. Like, mm -hmm. well, I mean, like I know, I know about binomial nomenclature, but I just, I just, mm -hmm. I guess I had never thought about it in that sense of like, well, what they're doing is basically replacing the, um, the nomenclature that, you know, indigenous people are using to, you know, instead use um, a European language, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which sort of like seems neutral because it's Latin and it's a dead language, but right. Except it's, it's still like, right? a, yeah. Um, well, I, I have to say though, um, I think dinosaurs are more and more using uh, like words from other languages other mm -hmm. than Latin. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but, but yeah. Like a lot of dinosaurs discovered in South America, for example, use instead of Latin terms, they use like Mapuche terms or whatever. Oh, that's so, cool. Actually, I actually yeah, haven't heard yeah. that. I'm 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 impressed. That is. I think it's very nice recent. But yeah, it's just like I, I love dinosaurs, so like I sometimes like mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but yeah, in general, I think you're right. But like it's ninety nine percent Latin, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so you took, you gave the example of physics and I think this is often a move that is made when we're having this kind of conversation where it's like we, the softer quote unquote, and, and even the difference between hard and soft sciences is like mm -hmm. a problematic <laughs> distinction that is based in that particular right. period as well. Um, but like, you know, the sciences that study human beings and things like that tend to be viewed as more sort of susceptible to these cultural impacts. But even that, I think, gives a false impression that the other on the other end of the spectrum, there isn't still like substantial social impact going on. It's just that it comes in the form of things like the history of various groups being persistently excluded from doing some sorts of study or some kinds of activity, whether that's people of color, whether that's women, and that as a result, those voices, those ways of thinking were excluded from those kinds of spaces, which in turn shaped sort of the realm of possibility of what ideas came forward within those spaces, which ones gained various kinds of dominance. And it's, I think it's very difficult for us to even really get a sense of how much that has, you know, shaped or misshaped uh, parts of these fields. Yeah. And so one thing I think is, well, two things actually, um, I think one problem, because I, I, I think, I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, a lot of people have been historically excluded from these fields, like, like physics, for example, right? Um, and so, like, one of the things I was going to say is that, like, a, a very um, extreme example of what you're saying, probably, like, the most extreme, I think, is, mm -hmm. like, during the 1930s, like, the... Deutsche Physik. I, I I don't know how to pronounce German, so that's, that's probably okay. a very. Bad, I don't know how to pronounce but, English. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So, but um, I don't know if you're. 
I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on that by any means. I, like, I just have a general idea of it. But basically, the idea was that um, theoretical physics were like too Jewish. Um, mm, that's right. Yes. Uh, and, relativity yeah. is too Jewy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like it's it's not empirical, right? It's just like theoretical calculations and, you know. And it's got relativism us, right there Germans in the title. have to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, us Germans have to do, like, you know, hard empirical science and, you know. Um, so th that's actually, you know, if you take your, you know, like the case that you were making to the extreme, I think that's what you get, basically, right? Um, right. And, and you point out... You, mm -hmm. Well, I was going to mention in, the art, in your article, you point out another like mistake that you think the anti-woke make about science is that their view of science is overly simplistic and excludes those kind of model-based approaches and that's why they end up being you know climate skeptical or something and various other kinds of issues because they have that kind of simplistic experimental design kind of view of the scientific method yeah, yeah. And so, by the way, I'm just to be clear, I'm not saying that the anti-woke are like the Nazis doing Deutsche Physik, right? <laughs> but, no, of course not. Uh, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, but I, I think that's true. And but I think and the other thing I was going to say is like um, and not to disagree with what with um, your point about like how people have been excluded from this um, mm -hmm. sort of areas of knowledge um but i do think for example sometimes the critiques that come from a more you know sociological view of science mm -hmm. sometimes um like the critics sometimes make their critiques without like fully knowing the field they're, they're criticizing and so like that sort of like discredits the more serious sociological mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. kind of uh, critique of science, for example. And so this is actually by like a very old review that uh, Richard Dawkins did of like the original so-called hoax, right? Mm -hmm. um, so maybe anyone who wants to take this with a grain of salt, then uh, feel free to do so. But... Uh, so, like in the so in the original um, so-called hoax uh, book, which I think is called um, oh, I forgot. But anyway, uh, so one of the examples that they use is um, I don't remember the name of the author, but uh, like the argument the author makes is that um, something like physics has not been able to um, solve turbulence mm -hmm. because, you know, turbulence is, like, very feminine and, you know, whatever. And, like, they, they don't pay attention to what? that. And, it, like, yeah, physics wants to just do, you know, you know, like, straightforward, like, direct male things, right? So um, hmm. turbulence is, like hasn't been like paid enough attention or something like that right and then the like the point is well actually like there are there is a system of equations that you know kind of addresses you know how to calculate the turbulent system but it's like a very 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 complicated system of equations so you know mm -hmm. um that's why so but so I think, and again, take it with a grain of salt because of the source. <laughs> uh, but I think critiques like that one often do can like like they can discredit um, more serious sociological critiques of science, right? Mm -hmm. um, that would do a better job of explaining, like you were saying, why. Um, people of certain racial groups have been excluded from these fields, right? Mm -hmm. 
Fair enough. I just realized we're getting short on time here. Did you want to give us any final sort of thoughts or uh, any suggestions on other resources that you'd point to for thinking about these kinds of issues before I subject you to the enlightening round? Um, no, I guess just, you know, don't let James Lindsay tell you what positivism is. Just actually <laughs> good advice. go and yeah, just, you know, go just and don't. read <laughs> logical positivist authors. It's, I mean, like, sure. Or the Stanford like, Encyclopedia of Philosophy or any one of yeah, any Yeah, yeah, no, actually, that, that, that's a really good resource, honestly. Like, yeah. 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 In that it is an actual encyclopedia. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, great. Well, then uh, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So I'm going to give you a set of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You're not allowed to hedge, right? right? This is the lightning enlightening round. So we'll move quickly yeah. through them. Are you ready? Yeah, like I can't explain why or... You can't explain just, anything. Nope. Just real, not real. Okay, fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Yeah. Let's get started. Is anything real? Uh, yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real or not real? Real. Colors. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. Uh, real. Mm. Okay. Free will. Uh, real. Selves or persons. Real. Genders. Uh, real. Races. Not real. Species. Real. Morality. Uh... <laughs> not real oh terrible right uh, um real <laughs> real interesting uh knowledge um real okay god or gods uh not real society real money um real numbers not real fictional characters uh not real holes like a hole in the ground um real chairs um real sandwiches real science Real. Natural laws. Um. Not real. Beauty. Not real. Causality. Um. Real. Love. Um. Real. And finally, time. Real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Uh, I felt like it was very like inconsistent with my. <laughs> <laughs> That's what like, everyone feels. I, I totally, I totally judge some things that you were saying based on some criteria, and then others on other criteria, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's pretty much standard. Pretty yeah. much the way that works. Yeah, I found you're um, saying that morality was not real, but rights are real to be particularly fascinating. That's not a yeah, exactly. And it, like, if if I might, if I if I may, just comment on that one. It, you may, uh, <laughs> I'll allow. So it. the things like, in in terms of like morality, I feel like I'm like the way I say it is like I'm a Pascal's wager about morality. Okay, you know, you're betting that it's real um, because it'd be bad if it wasn't. It'd be bad if it was and you and you got it wrong. Yeah. But you said you you said uh, it's not real though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because I was I was more leaning on like the you know I can't prove it's real, so I'm not gonna say it's. I see. I see. Yeah, and then when it came to rights, then I was just like, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a cruel joke. I apologize. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's, it's fair. Yeah. 
<laughs> at least everyone <laughs> suffers together, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I knew that was going to happen when we got to the enlightening round. So, yeah. yeah. It happens. Every, everybody falls the first time. That's the way it goes. Um, yeah. So, Nessa, this has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you again? Um, yeah, they can find me on Twitter. It's at Nestor underscore D. Um, okay. So, basically, my name underscore D. Yeah. Great. And uh, we'll have um, your articles and things linked in the show notes as well. So. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, All thank right. you so much for coming. This has been a fun chat. Thanks for having me. It's It's been. <laughs> yes, it has. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, James Allen Robertson, Jairus, and One-Eye King. And as always, I would like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, Aaron objectively has the same morality as baby-eating space turtles, Chatty, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And thanks, as always, to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Weird Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content, which I swear will be back right after the semester ends. Most of all, every moment of every day, remember, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.